Hello, I'm Kenny King, and I lead J.P. Morgan's America's Capital Advisor Group. During our first podcast episode, we discuss the role of hedge funds today. In today's episode, we will focus on the endowment model and how it has evolved over time. Our Capital Advisor Group speaks with over 180 endowments and foundations across the globe, with an average of $5.6 billion in assets under management. This is an important investor segment. Monica Iser, Global Head of J.P. Morgan Wealth Management Multi-Asset and Portfolio Solutions, will lead the discussion with Meredith Jenkins and Kim Liu. Meredith is the Chief Investment Officer for Trinity Wall Street, and Kim is Vice President and Chief Investment Officer for Carnegie Corporation of New York. Welcome, everybody. Monica, should we kick off the discussion? Thanks, Kenny. Let's start, actually, with defining the endowment model. First and foremost, the endowment model needs to generate high enough returns to take care of yearly withdrawals without dipping into principal. And then the second aspect of it really is preserving the real value of its principal and taking care of inflation. And these days, many of us have to focus on it more than ever before versus the Mm -hmm. past decade. So speaking about today, Meredith and Kim, we're thrilled to have this conversation with you. Considering we're at the later end of the cycle, one of the biggest questions that I know we're all facing is a much more muted return environment. Mm -hmm. And with that, what are the strategies within the hedge fund space are you considering as you think about forward-looking returns concerning you both do have that distribution to focus on each and every year? Thanks, Monica. Well, first, I'll give a little context because Trinity is a unique situation in that for the vast majority of our 300 plus years of history, our endowment was in direct real estate in downtown Manhattan. And a decision was made in 2015, partly because it felt like the cycle had run for quite a while on the real estate side, to take some money off the table. And so at that point in time, we sold a stake in our real estate, and that produced about $1.7 billion. Today, when we look at our endowment, we have about $2.8 billion in the diversified part of the portfolio, and we still have a remaining about $3 billion of exposure to direct real estate. So we're in a little bit of a unique situation because right. it's only been the past three years that we've had a diversified endowment. Part of the reason we took money off the table on the real estate was to be thinking about, okay, how can we get to a stage where we have a much steadier annual budget and a suspend more like a typical foundation that we can really rely on, we can be strategic, we can plan out over multiple years. And so that was a big piece of deciding to diversify. And then within that $2.8 billion, we think about, okay, what makes sense for diversification there? As you introduced it, the endowment model, it's a high bar to do all of that. And so I always think of kind of a secondary piece of the endowment model, because it is so difficult, is to think about what are your unique strengths and where do you have an edge so that you can do all of that? And so we try to think about that. I would say Kim will probably have more interesting stuff that's very direct for the current environment. You know, we are still in such early days. We're still doing a lot of foundation building and across the portfolio, looking at a variety of different opportunity sets in our marketable alternatives portfolio in particular that we think will really add resilience to the portfolio by kind of zigging when the market is zagging and having a different path than the market, but still over a cycle, an attractive path that we think produces the kinds of returns you need to produce a long-term spend. repeatable, but less correlated to maybe traditional markets. Kim, is that where you are doing most of you and the team doing most of the research on strategies? Because at this part of the cycle, everyone says, look, I'm going to do 10% or 12% over a cycle. We are now at the end of one cycle and probably starting to think about what the next cycle looks like. What types of strategies are you guys researching? 
let me put Carnegie Corporation in context first Perfect. and give you a little sense of how we think about the endowment model, because I think we embrace everything you just said. And there are some nuances to it that I think that is probably common among a lot of foundations, but perhaps a little different. So first, Carnegie is a three and a half billion dollar foundation, the oldest private foundation, in fact, got its first CIO in 1999 and so has been building out that portfolio over the last 20 years. So Meredith's portfolio is where we were probably 15 years ago Mm -hmm. as opposed to where we are now where we have a fully constructed portfolio. I think the nuance when we think about what the endowment model is, it is a way to leverage the fact that we have long-term assets and we can be somewhat benchmark agnostic. Right. And so when we think about what kind of strategies we look for, we look for strategies that leverage the fact that we can be patient capital. We don't need to have every part of the portfolio perform every year. So to your point that we have to preserve the endowment, the power of the endowment we have to preserve is only one hundred and twenty five million dollars because that was the original gift from Andrew Carnegie. Everything else is how the portfolio has grown. And so we have the ability to take a little bit of volatility and look through any one moment in time. Yes, we're all talking about the fact that we're late in the cycle right now. We've been talking about the fact that we're late in the cycle for about five years now. And so it is thinking about that, not because we managed to any one point in the cycle, we managed the endowment over cycles, meaning we build a portfolio that we think, regardless of where we are, there's some part of the portfolio that will perform. You may make some tweaks to it because of where you think you are, But our asset allocation is a long-term asset allocation. It doesn't change that much, right? Right. The portfolio construction within the asset allocation changes, but not the asset allocation. And so right now, when we're thinking about the portfolio, we're thinking about, yes, we're at a point where the equity markets maybe aren't producing or we fear that they won't be producing the return that they have in the past. And we have an equity-centric portfolio, so how do we think about it? Okay, let's think about things that are not necessarily tied to the equity market, but still have a lot of alpha and still perform well over the long term. I think that's a really important point, and I'm glad you brought it up. And what a nice contrast of where you both are in terms of stewarding the ship of your organizations. One of the things, Kim, you mentioned was permanency of capital, and I love that description because that really is what lent endowments and foundations to be one of the first types of institutional capital looking at, I'll use the term, quote unquote, alternatives, right? So what are the skill sets that you think about when you're thinking about your staff and looking at idiosyncratic returns, or we spoke a little bit about less correlated assets, are the unique characteristics that you're looking for in the people that you're hiring on your teams? I think it's a unique skill set. You know, when we go out to identify managers, these are people who we're going to partner with, we expect, for a long period of time when we decide to give them money. And they're out in the market every day for us. And so that's a really important and powerful partnership. So when I look for people who can do that, it's not just a um, they're really good at modeling and smart as a whip. That's an element. I want someone who's smart and curious and excited about it. But it's also they really like to meet people and they like to be students of people and how they work together as a team and whether there are kind of cracks in that or whether there's something really strong and durable and repeatable about that element. Because mm-hmm. I think when you're looking at these managers, a lot of times the issues that they end up having are they're resonant in something that's much more interpersonal or emotional than they are in just math. That's right. And the qualitative sometimes is most difficult, yeah. Yeah. actually, to both teach mm-hmm. as well as 
decipher out from managers themselves. And I think that's why right now it is increasingly more important to have diverse teams, mm-hmm. right? The type of skills that you're going to need in order to operate and outperform in this environment are changing. The patterns were clearer before, and I think the patterns are not as clear. So what you need is people who have seen a lot of different things. And similarly, when we look at our managers, we also want managers who have thought about that, who have thought about the market is not behaving exactly the way it has in the past. It rhymes, but it's not exactly the same. That's exactly right. And that's why like nimbleness, flexibility, Mm -hmm. to your point about wider experiences. I know one of the areas that we've been spending a lot of time on is healthcare. Healthcare used to be just understanding the science of, to your point about good at math, Mm -hmm. and then sort of lends yourself to be able to discern the quantitative elements of investing. And I know we've been talking about healthcare as an interesting sector. Are there other sectors or idiosyncratic return streams that are piquing your interest these days more than others? There's so much going yeah. on from an innovation perspective and the internet and TMT. And yep. so we were talking about you, cryptocurrency earlier. Exactly. Yeah, and no, and I always feel like it's hard for me to be an expert on all of that because my purview is so wide. Sure. But to find managers who are really deep in one of those that I feel like, oh, that person is an expert and I can go to them and they are so good at it that they can explain it in a way that anyone could get. To have those sorts of managers in our portfolio is great because it helps get us exposure to the wide variety of opportunities that we hope are all going to kind of perform differently in different environments. That actually brings me to something that we've been spending a lot of time on is key characteristics. Like what are those signals that help us see who will be those managers that continue to invest, right? To your point about both to have that expertise these days, you need to be able to have much more firepower. And firepower used to be defined as people, right? And now much more it's about data, systems, tools. We talked about the repeatability of investment returns. Are there other key characteristics besides some of the qualitative elements we already talked about around hedge funds that you guys look at in terms of a partner? Uh, In terms of qualitative, one thing we always like to understand is sort of a self-awareness and kind of these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses. And this is how I'm filling that in, either the people on my team or data sources that will help me in some way, but sort of a keen awareness of the mistakes they've made along the way, what they've learned from them, and self-awareness of, this is what I'm good at, this is what I struggle with more, and this is how I pull it all together. Right. And that transparency. Yeah. Yeah. I think despite the fact that the tools and the mechanisms we may use in order to outperform are evolving, the core of how we select managers are still the same, (laughs) is are you aligned? Do you act like a partner? Do you understand your market, and can you explain it in a way that the layman can understand it? Because we are explaining this to our board, who are laymen sometimes in this. It's also when you think about the opportunity set, are you aware of when your opportunity will work and when it will not work? And increasingly, have you built a business that is sustainable? A lot of people are so focused on, I just need to raise capital so I can get it done. But no, you're building a business, right? And your business has to be built to last because it's really hard with small teams and the kind of portfolio construction we have to have a lot of people coming in and out of the portfolio. Typically, the best investors are not necessarily the best at building businesses, and they introduce a lot of risk into that process. We're more likely to get burnt by a business risk than we are about an investment risk because there's tons of things we can do to back test for whether or not they're good investors, but much harder to tell whether or not something's going to be introduced into the mix that's going to make for a bad business. 
It's a really good point. And, you know, more and more the stakes are higher and higher. One of the things that we often talk about is at this part of the cycle, with the mandates that endowments and foundations have, there still has to have that deliberate return that has to be high enough to take care of that yearly withdrawal and understanding from managers is really, really important. Because in other types of buying behaviors, you don't necessarily need that draw each year. Mm -hmm. And so the permanency of the capital, that commitment is even more important as time goes on. One of the things that all of us seem to still talk about, even though it's been 11 years, <laughs> which is liquidity risk. Mm-hmm. And many of us were having conversations around high yield towards the end of last year. But liquidity risk also comes up. So the trade-off of return and liquidity as it pertains to whether it's hedge funds, private equity, real estate, you know, how do you all think about liquidity risk as you think about the portfolio construction, Kim, to your point on the portfolio? Maybe we start with you. I think that it is human for us to always solve for the last problem. And the last problem that the foundation and endowment space had was liquidity. We found out in 2008 that we did not have enough liquidity. And so certain behaviors happened. We all got line of credits. We all increased our cash or our fixed income exposure. We all thought about what our unfunded commitment looks like. And, you know, that's an important part of it, right? Because what happened last time, there were fewer varieties of capital that were invested in alternatives. And so what happened was a lot of the foundations and endowments who invested in these alternatives said to our managers, I need you not to call capital right now. Because We have a liquidity problem. And so that was a tool that was used. Let's just stop investing for a period of time and let us get our legs underneath us. Well, there's a far more diverse base of capital out there now. And some people will have plenty of resources and will not be happy about the decision to not invest, especially when the market dislocates, right? Because we're always looking for those moments when the market dislocates. And so it is about really controlling your unfunded. It is about having the ability to invest when the market declines but we have more tools now than we used to have. There are different ways to do that. I think we probably oversolved for liquidity, but given the fact that we have no inflows of capital, like we haven't gotten a new dollar since 1918, 1919, we're not going to get any more money. We have to be very conscious of that. All foundations do. So it's not that it is not an important thing. I don't think that that's going to be the problem that we have. It will be something new. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, as as Kim said, we don't get new money in. Our endowment peers are obviously in a very different situation, but for organizations that aren't significant regular capital raisers, you have to be thoughtful about where's your liquidity going to come from and the extent to which you've made commitments either to your private equity managers or more recently you've seen hedge funds raise these opportunity funds to sit on the sideline when things get much more dislocated in a way. And that's a real commitment that many of us and our peers have made. So you have to think about that liquidity that you have mentally tied up and have to have it ready. So I do think one of the good things that came out of the crisis was much more of a focus on liquidity and understanding, okay, these are the commitments we've made in the portfolio. This is what our annual spend needs are. And we do need to focus on that more and think about, okay, so what are the tools? Do we plan in ways to use futures? Do we plan, you know, and having a line of credit that will be there so that we don't have to sell when everything's down and we have the liquidity to do really interesting things when the market dislocates? You never know what it's going to look like, obviously, when that happens. That's right. And yeah. so it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. But patience and compounding, right? We often all talk about once you make those commitments 
having the patience to go through the cycle, as well as how powerful that compounding yeah. can be to meet those overall long-term returns. Right. You know, and it's going to be about bravery, right? right? Mm-hmm. Because people who even had liquidity were hesitant to invest when prices were good because people didn't know whether we were at the bottom. And so there is a little bit of not just having liquidity, but having the courage to use the liquidity that you have. And I think that that's going to be something that's going to be interesting to see how people respond. It's one of the things that we spend a lot of time looking at our hedge fund managers. How have they performed when things were rocky, right? Were they able to be brave? Were they able to invest capital when there were dislocations? How convicted were they in their portfolio? And a lot of times that's what you see, that you don't see that they're able to be brave at the right time or and reallocate capital in down markets. And so we're spending a lot of time looking at that too. And that's when we need them to, right? That's mm-hmm. that's when you, know, you think about the skill sets, the qualitative elements, not just how they've done historically, but in those dislocations, do they stay true to their investment strategy or not, right? And, and, so, and that's a very qualitative assessment. Yes. You know, it's the those questions of, so what do you do when the chips are down? Exactly. Meredith and Kim, thank you so much for this discussion this morning. It was really terrific to get your insights and how you both are thinking about stewarding your institutions as fiduciaries. As you said, this is really important role that we all play in pretty challenging markets. And today's discussion was just terrific. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Monica. That was a great discussion. Thank you, Monica, Meredith, and Kim for your time today. We look forward to hosting our next guest and hope you enjoyed tuning into this podcast episode of the J.P. Morgan Capital Advisor Group miniseries. The views in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase or its affiliates. This communication is provided for information purposes only. J.P. Morgan Chase or its affiliates, collectively J.P. Morgan, normally make a market and trade as principal and securities, other financial products, and other asset classes that may be discussed in this communication. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please consult the links in the description.